Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for January 2015. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, in the Paul Fag reboot of Hyphenates would be played by Jenny Slate, I hope, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there everybody, Happy New Year, I'm uh, writer, hyphen, director, hyphen, mine should be Rashida Jones, or is that Rashida Jones should be mine, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is our very special guest... Hi, I am author, hyphen, editor, hyphen, critic, hyphen, Tom Hanks enthusiast, Jess Lomas. <laughs> I love that you're so willing to admit to that. Absolutely. I'm just realising I probably should have chosen Tom Hanks. <laughs> that would have made sense. That'd be yeah, a short that, show. That you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's not mention Larry Crown. <laughs> Awesome. Well, welcome, Jess. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming. It has been a very long time coming. Thank you for kicking off 2015 with us and talking, amongst other things, about Into the Woods, because we're going to talk about the films of January 2015. One of them is Into the Woods. Now, we're all film critics. We're friends with film critics. We know that film critics generally fall over themselves to prove how biased they're not. And I think these people are idiots. I think we're all biased. I think I'm the most biased a lot because I am so biased. I am so uh, uh, conditioned with this film in particular that whenever there was a word that was different to the original Broadway production, I flinched. I turned to look at my wife. I just I, I reacted in some way. So I mean, this is in no way an objective uh, take on the film because I've also been dying to make it myself for twenty years. So I was I was so judgmental. Can't you know, imagine why. Yes, I know. I just thought I should get that out of the way because, and you know what, I didn't love it. There are some things okay. that I did like. One thing in particular, and this is in thinking about how you'd make this film, as I have been for decades, I thought the hardest thing to do would be the transition from Act 1 to Act 2. I think generally this film handled that really well. I was surprised by how they did it, and I, I give them credit for that. And the other thing is the Cinderella uh, stuck on the steps of the palace mm-hmm. Solo is exactly how I, the freezing time thing with her. I thought that was that was exactly how I would have done it. Four points, but aside from some performances, that's all I really liked. Oh no! <laughs> did, oh, you, no. did you? Well, I mean, I have to state that I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not familiar with the actual Broadway show. I've never seen it, so mm-hmm. I don't have that connection going into it. And I guess I should also say that I saw this like two days after I landed back in Australia from the states, so. I possibly could have been jet lagged and influenced by just all the pretty things happening on the screen. I didn't hate it. I mean, I think it's a perfect new film to discuss uh, comparing to our filmmaker later on who just did amazing um, musicals. But I think the thing that really took it down a notch for me with Into the Woods was the CGI. Like, Mm. that really distracted me from what I thought, you know, the singing everything else, the story was great. So it was, it was fresh to me. And I think maybe that's why I sort of was taken in a little bit more by it. And I was willing to forgive maybe things that obviously annoyed you. I so the obsessive eye. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I didn't know if there were lines of dialogue missing or um, I think there was like a reprise of a song, uh, The Two Princes, which was my favourite mm. part of the whole film, I think. Mm. And I saw afterwards everyone saying that there was meant to be a reprise of that. And yeah. so I didn't miss that stuff. I feel like we're the three bears here because <laughs> in terms of Lee is ridiculously familiar with the play. You're not familiar with yeah. the play at all, Jess. I'm somewhere in the middle because I was shown the Broadway. Pro- I was shown the Broadway production on on DVD mm. by an ex girlfriend of mine who was really into it, 
And so I'm, I've only seen it the once, but I, am, I do have that vague familiarity. And like Ely, I felt a lot of the holes. I think one of the problems is their shift from Act 1 to Act 2 actually takes place from Act 2 to Act 3 in this film. It yes, comes so late, and it just completely deflates anything that, mm. that goes on. Look, I like you. I love the performances. I think mm. the performances of this film's saving grace. I think everyone is really good. Maybe not Academy Award-nominated good, no. but for me, the MVPs were um, Emily Blunt and James mm. Corden. I thought they oh, were fantastic. Yeah. I don't think Emily Blunt can do anything wrong, in my opinion. She really I, can't. Yeah, I'd watch true. a movie of her like painting a wall or something, and <laughs> think that would be amazing. Just fascinated. Yeah, she's yeah. always great. My my issues with this film come back to what they cut, cutting, Disneyfying the play mm, essentially, yeah. and cutting all the guts out of it. Like That's why, what everyone was worried about was are they going to make it too clean? And I mean, because you people want to take their kids to it. Is it mm, going to be? Yeah, you know kids walking out of the cinema crying and well, the, and, and for the most part that's what they do because like the film uh, like the play is there's all this like really rich subtext about fairy tales and reality mm. and our expectations and you know realistic dreams and that's all sort of sanded off the edges yeah. are really sanded off there but my main thing was i thought this film was doggedly almost aggressively non-cinematic it was so mm. uncinematic. I thought the whole thing just looked like a big TV movie. See, I, I think I would have got to that if I could get past my, you know, my initial problems, mm. which mm. was the problems with the subtext. And, and I think the Johnny Depp uh, wolf bit is, is indicative of this, and in that in the play, it's a metaphor for a sexual predator, because he's he's dressed completely as a wolf from head to toe, and the girl is uh, is slightly older. And they play up the metaphor of it and the humour of it, and so mm. it, it's 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 a metaphor here. It's just a guy in a hat, and she's mm. really young. There's yeah. no metaphor going. <laughs> it's like God, you made all the wrong choices here. As soon as it was announced that Disney were doing it, people were like, "They're going to ruin it." And mm. but uh, and I haven't read a lot up about it, but wasn't Sondheim like on board with this adaptation? He was like, "Guys, don't worry, I got this. It's all oh. good." So it's interesting that you mm. guys, you know, especially you, Lee, having you know. I suspect I've seen it more than Sondheim has. Okay. I've watched <laughs> it a lot. Sondheim's pretty old now, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> He's still the master. He's still, like, with respect. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for him. Whereas uh, Foxcatcher, from the wolf to the fox, Segway, <laughs> nailed it. Didn't you can even retire think of that. Now. Oh, you just wait until I get to oh, Birdman. Oh, it's gonna man. Be, oh. oh, the Segways. Um, but... Yeah, Foxcatcher is this. Speaking the... of creepy men dagging around, uh... <laughs> there you go. But but these are these are creepy men creeping on other creepy men. Yeah, there are no uh, girls in danger here, so this is <laughs> that's fine. They can do. But no, this is is this Bennett Miller's best film? Like I I don't mind his stuff, but this is uh, I think this is a step up. I'm someone that I've got to say I I have no time for Capote. I I thought it was. A, thunderously dull film um, which most people seem to love and I thought Moneyball was just okay I thought it made a, a lot of dodgy choices and, and just didn't really mm. ring true to me I didn't make the most out of Sorkin's script I think this is exactly the kind of film he should be directing mm. this spare mm. character study about damaged people this is and that sort of sense of carefully crafted foreboding that he mm. gives every scene in all of his films. It's so cold. Like, I actually, I felt cold watching it. Like, yes. not just because there was a lot of snow, but because it's so washed out and the, and the characters are so and closed off from their emotions. And from such distance and mm. slowly creeping mm. in. And there's a lot of air in the frame, you know? Yeah. And, and, yeah, and characters closed off. And I was very impressed by this film. Mm. 
Oh, it's very. So, the performances were terrific. A strange trio of people. Like, yeah. I mean, obviously, Ruffalo's Dave Schultz is the most quote unquote normal of the three. Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, and seemed very sweet. But he's kind of bearish and has this strange kind of stance yeah. with the hands. And I'm doing it as this isn't really working for podcasts. Um, trust me, I'm doing Ruffalo's thing with the hands. Um, and then you've got. You've got poor old Channing Tatum, and and he's fantastic. He's well. like, brilliant. Yeah, yeah like I, I I I really turned around on Tatum as an actor mm. some time ago now. So well, you didn't catch on to him with Step Up, like come on, <laughs> I, I I remember the moment that I turned around on Tatum, and it wasn't seeing one of his performances. It was Soderbergh has cast him in something, and I'm like, yep, I'm yeah, on board. Now I'm yeah. down. If 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 my Lord and Master gives him the thumbs up, then I am the biggest Channing Tatum fan in the world. And yeah, no, I feel totally validated with that uh, terrible manner of making a decision. (laughs) As you were talking about Capote and Moneyball before, and I was just thinking that both of those movies, while at the time I watched it once and went, yeah, you know, that's a good movie, it's a solid movie, I have no desire to return back and rewatch those, Mm. whereas Foxcatcher I can see myself getting the DVD and sitting down and and actually looking for all the stuff that I missed, and, Mm. and that's what, I mean... I like in a movie is that it's there's some movies where you know Into the Woods yeah you can probably watch that once and that's enough yeah, and yeah. you're not going to really miss anything too subtle in there but Foxcatcher there's definitely a lot to go back for there's a lot of subsets it has one of my favourite final shots of recent times yeah. as well uh, both the shot and what you're hearing mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, I love the way it goes out I think it's perfect but yeah I was hugely hugely impressed unsettled mm. there like it's it's bleak but there are strange dark comedic moments as well throughout but yeah it just feels it feels like a film that's perfectly attuned to what Bennett Miller does Mm. were you saying that you were a fan of Channing Tatum when he did Step Up (laughs) I'm surprised no one else is a fan (laughs) (laughs) why isn't everyone a fan (laughs) and and, and we said that this was a big step up for Bennett Miller (laughs) the biggest step up of the night I'm I'm on top of them here it comes Inaratu with Birdman. Oh, good God. Alejandro Gonzalez, Gonzalez? Inaratu. Inarito. Who I. Inarito. Inarito. My apologies. Two. I. Uh, yeah. yeah, I cannot stand his films in general. I didn't like. Amoros Peros was actually a key film for me because it was when I was really into. I was, you know, first really getting into foreign cinema. I was out of uni. I was really eating it all up. And I didn't like this film, which was great because it proved to me that I wasn't just liking all foreign films because they were foreign. I was like, oh, no, I do actually have some level of judgment here. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Um, uh, nine, 21 grand. 21 grand. Where grams. they got a perfectly fine linear film and then just chopped it up, threw it in the air and arranged it in whatever order they liked. I agree, except for the perfectly fine linear film bit. <laughs> Couldn't stand it. Did not like it. This is like it's directed by someone else, like a different filmmaker. And this guy I love. You, you missed Babel and Beautiful. I well. sure did miss them, <laughs> and not just in conversation. No, this is uh, this is fantastic. Like on a technical level, it's really interesting. Like the it, he takes a gimmick and and imbues it with all this meaning. Like the idea of this this single shot, which is completely fake, just speaks so much about what the characters are going through. Um, I love the. I was actually going in expecting that you know that thing of oh Michael. Keaton, and he played a character called Birdman within the film. Oh, it's going to be about comic book films. And it's really not. Like, you Mm. could have made this film in the 80s or 90s with an action star, or in the 70s with a cowboy star. Like, it it gave it this whole other uh, other, uh, tinge. And this, yeah, it's just this fascinating film about the fakeness of worlds and how 
you know, one has all this prestige, you know, Broadway with all the prestige, but it's really as fake as Hollywood. It's just, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on, sort of being buried mm. beneath the comedy, which is great, mm. and, and the meta-ness of Keaton's casting. Uh, I, yeah, no, I think this is superb. Oh, it's fantastic. Like, what, I mean, what a way to start off your movie-watching year if you yeah. started with Birdman. You, mm. you got a pretty tough competition. The thing that, one of the things that struck me watching it was it was probably the first time that I actually um, noticed in a film <clears throat> the feeling of what it must be like to be an actor walking out on a stage in front of an audience because mm. you get that build-up behind the stage and then the sweeping shots as they follow him onto, stay, onto the stage and you see the audience. And I had this moment of going, well, that... You feel the pressure and, um, yeah, that was one thing that struck me, apart from obviously how amazing, uh, again, all the performances were. Mm. I don't think there was a really a weak one amongst them. Absolutely not. I, it's funny. I, the one take thing says to me, I think, was it 65 years, 54, 49, 51, yeah, 65 years after Alfred Hitchcock Rope. made Rope, yeah. <laughs> I feel like a film has finally cracked how to do theatre on screen. Like, not mm. only with the one take, but also just dropping characters. Like, they're talking about getting Mike Shiner. They walk into the next room, Mike Shiner's there. Yeah. Mm. And it's like, it's, it's, you know, it's all done in one shot, but it takes place over three days. Mm. Even the kind of, the, the bit, you know, the bits where it kind of shoots the sky for a while mm. and then comes back down feels like the theatre's gone dark and they're shifting everything on stage and then the lights yeah, come up right, and yeah. you're back on again. It just felt like theatre. And I've never seen a film do that, that impressively before mm. good god I, I mean this almost felt like a bookend to my favorite film of last year which was inside lewin davis mm. in they both seem like kind of films about artists undergoing both artistic and existential crises in basically what may or may not be the worst best and worst week of their lives yeah right and th that uh, taps on a lot of the same things like if you mean it like is it doesn't you know your passion means nothing if it isn't actually good you know <laughs> you know if 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 you put your best work into something and nobody sees it or nobody appreciates it. Does it even matter? You know, all of that sort of, and maybe it's cause I'm, you know, I'm fond of asking myself, myself those kind of questions of late, but both of those films really appealed to me on that level. I mean, Inside Lewin Davis is much more poignant. This film's much more comic, but mm. I really, really got that kick out of it. The performances are amazing. I mean, I could watch Michael Keaton and Edward Norton play acting tennis from now to the <laughs> yeah. end of time. I mean, they are just brilliant. Emma Stone's fantastic. I don't think enough's been mentioned of Amy Ryan, mm. who plays Keaton's wife. I think she, I, she was arguably my favourite female performance in the movie, and a lot of it's good one scene. It's the scene she has with Keaton in his dressing room mm. near the end. And, yeah, I just was completely, you know, I loved its little jabs and it's kind of looking at the theatre world and the weird antagonistic relationship between actors and, and um, critics, mm. um, which I'm sure yeah, happens. Yeah, it was brilliant. It's great. <laughs> um, Lindsay Duncan is also fantastic and, and while she's not on the poster, I don't know. She should be. That's um, my only problem with the film, really. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought this was an absolute blast from beginning to end in terms of everything from its technical virtuosity to the various layers of, of, of how, you know, one can interpret this, like in terms of, you know, your thing with the, the facades and the fakery and my thing of, you know, the artist's kind of dilemma. And, yeah, I think this film's been criticised for having very little subtext, which I think is crazy because I think it's loaded with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, whether it all matches up is up to you to decide. But I just, yeah, I just thought this was mind-bogglingly great. And 
I'm a little jealous. You're jealous of Into the Woods. I'm jealous because I wanted to be the guy to bring Michael Keaton back. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Alejandro González Inaritu. Hell is for high Thank minutes, you. the podcast of the angry, frustrated filmmaker posing as a film critic. This is what we're... How is this been, different from every other film podcast? That's been us since day one. It's I just, know. I this we, is the episode we put it on Front Street after yeah, five and a half years. Yeah, we better at the beginning. This is, you're, we're coming up on our fifth birthday and we're like, nah, it's out on the table. Yeah. Oh, the, one more thing about yeah, yeah. Birdman is that it has the grease ending as well. Which, uh, without spoiling anything, if you think about the end of Greece yeah. when they fly off into the sky, yeah. and the theories that have come out since the ah. film's release, because there isn't that sort of magical element, you know, I mean, during mm. Birdman, it, there is the magical elements, but there's, you know, the scene uh, when he's in the hospital, and not to say too much, but, you know, there is, you can read into that what you what you want to, and I yeah. think... It's kind of, you get the frustrating, the movies that try and do that open-ended um, ending that are frustrating mm. because it's just stupid. And then it's done really well here where, you know, maybe he did fly off with Sandy into the sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot. Now I've got to go look up the Grease ending. How do you not know this off by heart? I don't. I think I'm just exposing myself as someone who loves Step Up and Grease a bit too much. <laughs> well, musicals, as we'll soon find out. All right, Jess, please tell us whom have you picked for your... Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. Uh, Mr. Vincent Minnelli. Hooray! Yay! Not Vin- Vincente or Vincente say, Minnelli. Yeah, as I I'm just going to go with the Aussie pronunciation. Well, no, no we've I had it confirmed. Yeah, we, we checked. It's Vincent. Oh, it's Vincent? Well, okay. Because in Bells Are Ringing, they've got the name drop song, and one of the names they dropped is Vincent Minnelli. There you go. And so what is it about Minnelli that you love so much? Okay, let me weave you a little story. Weave away. <laughs> so, um, growing up, I was obsessed with Judy Garland. My grandmother taped Wizard of Oz off the TV, and um, every time that I went to her place, I would watch that. So, this time, my grandma was in Adelaide. We lived four hours into the middle of nowhere in Wyala. So, every time we went you know, there, I'd watch this movie, and finally, my great-aunt Dawn, my grandma's sister, said... Okay, this is getting ridiculous. You like Judy? Here you go. Here's Meet Me in St. Louis. <laughs> Here's something else. Here's something else. For the love of God, can you stop watching this movie? And so Meet Me in St. Louis was my gateway drug to Manelli. And from there, I think what attracted me to the films, as I said, growing up in the middle of nowhere, we didn't really have access to live theatre or anything like that. So being able to watch um, the amazing performances in his films the stage performances, the full ballets and dances and being transported and going, what is this magical world? I think Minnelli for me really represents the power that Hollywood can have and what, you know, the golden age of Hollywood and and the magic, if that sounds corny, that Hollywood can capture on screen with just people and a really fake-looking backdrop. (laughs) Uh, and then obviously, yeah, going through from the musicals into the comedies, um, there were a, a lot of films. Um, the Long Long Trailer is one that mm. is a favourite from when I was a kid. It always seemed to be that Saturday afternoon movie on the TV. And then all the way into the dramas and um, The Bad and the Beautiful, like amazing film. And so what impresses me probably the most about Minnelli is his consistency between genres and uh, there, there, of course, are some misses. Not everyone's perfect. But for a director to move from comedy to musical to drama 
and to produce so many classic films is really impressive. Mm. So there you go. It, it's interesting because he started out in theatre mm. and he was on Broadway doing a lot of like production design and directing and he actually made a name for himself. He used to get quoted in New York Times reviews, you know, and Hollywood kept coming calling. And like his first few films were actually uncredited work on other people's films. So he did uh, like pickups and he came in to save the day on things like Panama, Hattie and the Heavenly Body. And I think he got a bit of a reputation of being a steady hand. Mm. And so they were very quick to give him his own films. And he ended up making, you know, at least a film a year. There were some years where he had three films come mm. out. He made 15 films in the 50s alone. 15 yeah. in a segment of another film. Starting with Cabin in the Sky in 43 was the first all-black cast in over a decade. Is uh, that just in a studio film or is that in a film at all? Because I can't think of another studio film that had an all-black cast before this. There was a... Oh, what was it? Was it King Vidor or someone like okay. over a decade earlier had done one? I'm learning so much from the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> right from the beginning, when he went to Hollywood, he said, I'm so sick of static cameras. Mm. I don't know why directors just stick the camera on a tripod and leave it. He wanted to see the camera move. He couldn't believe they weren't doing it. And this is a guy from the theatre. And so uh, the first thing he did was he started moving the camera. Like, even his special effects, there are some great special mm. effects in Cabin in the Sky, but they're always motivated by a reality. There's also I Dude It, the Red Skeleton <laughs> what Comedy. A, what a title. I did promise Paul I would be the one to say it out loud. <laughs> that was a sticking point. That was one of my things when we first when you first said Manila. It's like, we're going to have to say I Dude It out loud, aren't we? <laughs> Which is a catchphrase that Red Skelton had as a comedian yeah. that appears nowhere in the film. No. But they just titled it that Which, to bring his audience in. But appears in Panama Hattie. Like, just as a random, hey, I'm that guy who says that thing. Um, I actually, you know what? I actually had a lot of fun with this movie. Like, it's very no plot but immediately there's a rope dance scene that's really impressive yeah and these sort of these long takes like a minute minute and a half sort of shots of people dancing and doing complicated things and and you know often there'll be a, a, a five or six minute dance sequence with three cuts in it and that's something that would keep going mm. on throughout his career as well he'd leave the camera running for as long as possible and yeah. not chop these dance scenes up but yeah three films into his career is when he gets to meet me in st louis Yes. In 44. My heart just fluttered a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> was his third or fourth film? Third. Third. Third wow. credited Yeah, film. right. Yeah. Garland's brilliant in it. The casting is spot on. And he really cuts through the treacle, mm. I find. Like, I does love he, those directors. Like, does he leave? Yes, he does, Paul. <laughs> so that's Meet Me in St. Louis, which Jess and I both love. Okay, maybe not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, need, I need to hear um, some criticism of sure. the film. So take Go it away, it, Paul. Paul. <laughs> Look, it's... Purely subjective. It's because uh, look, I, look I I can't fault the film's craft. It's beautifully made, and um, and boy does that boy lo love himself a crane shot. But I had no interest in this family whatsoever. I had no interest in this story. I just had no interest in what was going on, and I didn't. I, I liked the trolley song. That was kind of about it. I just I don't know. I just I look musicals aren't my natural thing, yeah. and. I just couldn't I couldn't get into the story at all. I found it completely impenetrable and seemed to take forever. But again, I I, I could be objective enough to look at it and think, yeah, this guy's got a real assured hand three films mm. in. And the way that he shoots Garland in the film is amazing. Wasn't that one of the reasons why they speculated that they married? Because he <laughs> shot like, he her. He look amazing. Yeah, like he, she felt he made her look more beautiful than anyone else. Yeah. And that was and something she cared about a lot. Yeah. Well, from a young age brought up to think that she wasn't 
pretty enough and yeah. thin mm. enough and well okay so it must be you know you're not a fan of musicals Paul so it must be a relief that his next film is not a musical no The Clock The Clock in 45 with Garland again who really wanted to prove she was grown up again there's really really innovative stuff here and this is what struck me with his films there's stuff that's so far ahead of its time and, and here it's the um, this montage at the beginning you know the soldier coming home from war he's from a small town he's almost and it's almost a bigger shock to come to New York there's a montage at the beginning which shows how intimidating it is for him. And I think, God, this is, this is years ahead of its time. And, yeah, there's a lot of really, really clever filmmaking in there. You know, it's not, it's not a very memorable film. I don't think it's a great I, film. I think the first hour is adorable. Like, the first hour is just them. Oh, it's so romantic and cute. And... Yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's a little, like I, like, I remember seeing it when I was younger and thinking, man, he's a real stalker. But seeing it this time, it's like, ah, oh, it's a little less. He gives her a few outs. Like, he gives her chances yeah, yeah. to kind of go, all right, look, I'm sorry. I've, I've wasted too much of your time. And then she goes, no, no, no. And, and it's like, it's nice. And then they spend the last half hour running around trying to get married. And it's just like, so. <laughs> So many of these films, these early Manellis, just felt like products of their time. Mm. Like they're very much of their time in terms of mm. the story. I felt that about Meet Me in St. Louis. I felt that about the film coming up, Undercurrent. What I like about the war films made around that time that we don't tend to have so much of now because we're quite distanced from, especially world wars. Mm. We're very sheltered from what we see of them and. Watching a film like The Clock, it's not so much, it's not so as full on as, say, The Best Years of Our Lives, where you look at the mental trauma experienced by the soldiers coming yeah. home. But watching them as someone, you know, who's never had to deal with war in their life, you sort of get a sense of the preciousness of life. And I think the whole thing of running around trying to get married and it may be sort of done in a, a bit of a hammy way, but. It really gave me a sense of, at the time, that, you know, life is fleeting and, mm. and um, whether the marriage ended in divorce 20 <laughs> years later, who knows? It did worry me a little bit. There yeah. was this innocence and, you know, as, as a bit of a romantic myself, you sort of watch it going, you know, as someone wanting to escape into the movies, I think Manelli, and especially in The Clock, he just does that perfectly. But then he's back into the musicals in 45 with Yolanda and the Thief. Again, there's stuff in here that is ahead of its time. The phrase I'm going to overuse so much today. Because, <laughs> um, like, there are avant-garde surreal fantasy dance sequences, which I think was the first of its time. I'm saying mm. that very trepidatiously. There's a lot... I'm you know Busby sure. Berkeley was up and about, like, yeah, a decade know, before this. I'm pretty sure he was breaking down that. Sure. All right. Well, okay, maybe Busby. But more, I mean, Minnelli was more modernist in the approach. Like, Berkeley was all about the... It was very classical. No, I think you're right. Classical, yeah. yeah. Whereas Minnelli came in with the bold colours and the sharper costumes and um, angles and stuff mm. like that. That's yeah. as good as you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pay that. Yeah, and then in 46 he made Undercurrent, which I wrote here as it was a precursor to Suspicion, which was actually made five years earlier. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a bit melodramatic, a but there's... Yeah. It, it, I think it proves that like, whenever he made a thriller, he was this kind of bizarre magnet for really odd scripts. Like, this film made no... On a narrative level, it's nonsense. It's just complete. <laughs> none of it makes any sense. Oh, I'm not even going to begin mm, to start okay. recounting the plot. But... but but Manelli's work, there, are, there is stuff he does with shadows here, mm. which I think if he just stuck with this genre, he could have rivaled Hitchcock. Yeah, if he'd had a better script, yeah. it would have been something, yeah, but something it's like, great. yeah, But I think he's, he has this eye that doesn't just apply to musicals or comedies. Mm. It's that he has a way of interpretation which lends itself naturally to every genre. I think the thing with Manelli is that really struck me more than anything else in terms of his innovation was 
he seemed to be one of the first people that really was all about how much can I fit in the frame mm. in terms mm. of levels and depth and background and things happening behind things, behind things, behind things, and off over here and off over there and just cramming the frame with detail. Like, I think of all of the old world directors, he's one of the, the ones that will benefit most from Blu-ray because there's going to be so much detail you're going to see for the first time with shit happening in corners of frames and in back. Mm. Um, Actually, that is that is true, because when Jess picked yeah. Manelier, I jumped on the internet and ordered a bunch of Blu-rays of yeah. my favourite of his. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there is in detail Kismet in there. Especially, you sort of like end up watching someone in the market behind rather yes. than yeah. the front of scene. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. And apparently, um, Liza Minnelli actually said that she was in Europe and like some guy came up to her and said, I was an extra in one of your father's films, and uh, I actually think it might have been Madame Bovary, and he went to each of the extras and told them what they were doing. What? Oh, yeah, in I the can scene. imagine. And this yeah. huge party scene, like, and you guys are going through this, and it was that attention to detail, which kind of plays against stories like In Some Came Running, where Sinatra and Martin were frustrated that they were getting zero direction, <laughs> he just cared about the production design. So you hear all these conflicting stories about But how maybe he, he considers the extras production design. I, I think that's a good interpretation. <laughs> um, yeah, The Pirate in 48 was the next film, a, a musical comedy with Gene Kelly and Judy Garland. How this was a flop is beyond me. Tell me about this it. This is art on the screen, people. <laughs> yep. I'm actually with you on this. This was... I have four words. Gene Kelly, booty shorts. Bam! <laughs> this, yeah. This was the surprise of, of all the films. Like, yeah. this was the one that really got me. You I enjoyed was, it? Yeah, I loved it. Oh, I thought awesome. it was absolutely delightful. It's just like, so much fun. Yes. Mm. And yeah. all the songs move the story forward. It's not like, let's take a while to just watch someone dance because they're really good at dancing. It's... It's like all of the songs illustrate something. It's him, you know, selling his lie as uh, mm. who he is and mm. mock fighting or her going through a hypnotism thing where she's going off on her. It's just, yeah, I thought it was hilarious. I thought Garland and Kelly were both, both played each other off each other beautifully. Mm. Um, it had a lot of spunk. It moved at 100 miles an hour. I really, really enjoyed this film. Mm. Yay. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> this one was a delight. <laughs> so the pirate did not make much money. He went... Like that- what was my mind? Uh, yeah. And then in 49, he made Madame Bovary and had to make it really cheap because he didn't want to spend as much as he spent on the pirate. And he's making this lush melodrama. This is a very, very controversial novel because it ran into problems with the censors. And so they bookend it with uh, Flaubert, who wrote... Flaubert? Who wrote Bovary and played by James Mason, bookending the film arguing with the censors at the trial <laughs> that he was put on. Right. So it's sort of an out where you go, you can't really take anything that happens too seriously because you know it's Mason telling a story mm. and you're less invested. It's a very clever device. And um, But there was one scene where he spent money and it's one of the most extraordinary scenes I think he ever directed is this waltz, this lavish waltz sequence, um, which is the high point of Bovary's life. You know, she's this massive social climber and this is kind of the moment where she's got everything she wants. And she's waltzing around, you know, having the time of her life. She claims to be too hot, and the host of the party orders the windows smashed. Bovary is too hot, smash the windows. The servants all pick up chairs and they smash the windows. And there's this violent imagery and these loud crashes as she's going around. This almost mania of, of, of I'm too happy and everything's cr- I mean, crashing down. And this, this, ter- you know, this inner turmoil being uh, represented physically that is just so exciting. And it, and it just keeps continuing. You know, he keeps that theme of smashed mirrors and smashed glass going throughout the film. And it's just incredible visual work. And even though I don't think this is one of his best films... 
that is possibly the best sequence he directed. Mm. Mm. And earning themselves about 1,012 years of bad luck. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the next two films, Father of the Bride and the only sequel that either he or Spencer Tracy mm. made, Father's Little Dividend. Back to back. Back to like, back. Yeah. Boom, boom. Well, made so much money. In. And Catherine oh, yeah. Hepburn was actually key in convincing Tracy to do both the films because she'd worked with him. Uh, well, well, they were probably a couple by that point. Oh, no, no. Oh. Uh, he, she'd worked with Minnelli. Oh, right, yeah. Jack Benny, the comedian, really wanted the role, mm, Father right. of the Bride. Minnelli very wisely recognised that for the comedy of the film to work, the lead had to be a dramatic serious actor mm, yeah. invested in the drama. And he told Tracy, you know, if you don't do the film, I don't want to do it. And it pays it off, pays off yeah. so well. Because he's right. He's <laughs> right. You need that, that straight man with all the chaos around him. <laughs> yeah, mm. he plays it beautifully. And again, a surreal sequence, the dream sequence. Yeah, that's right. How do you think someone who's only seen Steve Martin <laughs> would go... Like, because I, I saw... Uh, this one first before, yep. you know, um, the newer, but it's probably Remake. like what? Yeah, yeah like yeah, 25, 25 years, something years like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, God. You know, you often get used to what um, comedy is now or the 80s, 90s, and now. Mm. Um, but I, I, even going back and watching this after having rewatched the modern remake, um, mm. I still think the comedy is accessible for, for people. Yeah. I, yeah. Think I think it works. I think, so. yeah. I think it's yeah. enough. To completely relate to yeah. today's experience yeah. and what people do, like marriage, like weddings are still insane. Still oh, I think if now they're even things. more insane now than yeah. they were yeah. back when the film was made. So and and you've got Elizabeth Taylor playing the daughter as well. Like yes, that's something that you know comes out of nowhere. Okay, <laughs> great. And then that's after those two films, here we go. Here I'm we go. Excited. <laughs> we can all get on board with this one. An American in Paris in 1951. For, for my money, the film that held the title of greatest musical ever made for seven months until Singing in the Rain came out. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of the greatest Technicolor musicals. Oh, yeah. So many inventive set pieces. That epic final ballet, that Oscar Levant dream sequence. Just film. Oscar Levant. Oscar Levant. Oh, <laughs> There's yeah. that incredible scene where he realises that the two guys, Kelly and the, and the oh, French yeah. guy... Are both in love with the same girl. Yes. Well, I was just going to say, the like the and the coffee yeah, and the cigarettes and more cigarettes. It's like the perfect example of making a love triangle work without mm. weighing it down in in anything unnecessary. It's just so simple and it works so well. And, and you can tell that the friends have a lot of respect for each other and yeah. also genuine love for her. Like it doesn't yeah. get bogged down in stupid like. Like, in the end, like, you know, the girl never doesn't feel like a prize mm. and the guys don't feel like they, you know, kill their own mothers just to be with the girl. Exactly. Like, there's this kind of weird mutual, not weird, it's great, mutual respect going on mm. that really makes it work. And also the whole thing about him being a kept man by the, mm. the, um, by the art dealer who's kind of a very masculine character and he's almost kind of the, the, the female, the traditional female character in this. Absolutely. He's someone that's kind of being hired as someone who's desirable and mm. someone who's in, and not in control of the relationship at all. The only complaint I have with this film is it should have ended 70 seconds before yeah. the ending. There's I swear a... <laughs> if it had just ended at the end of the dance sequence with the rose in the dark, yeah. if it just cut to black there, I would have cried. Yeah. And then it goes on for another 70 seconds and something happens. It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, <laughs> the rest of the film was brilliant. Best musical to win, best picture. And then The Bad and the Beautiful in 52, the 
fantastic melodrama with Kirk Douglas and Lana Turner. You know, there's obviously there's a lot of inside baseball going on as well as who characters might be based on. Mm. There's they've said that his career, um, uh, the character that Douglas plays, Jonathan Shields, his career certainly mirrors Val Luton for mm. a while, but then he kind of becomes David O'Selznick mm. yeah. um, and, and, and things like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it was slightly too melodramatic for me at times, but I had a lot of fun with this. I thought it was really cool. And that car crash sequence, by the way. Yes! I didn't know they could shoot like that back then. Well, not a lot of people did. Yeah. Like, that's... I, I gotta say, Minelli for the next Before Fast and the Furious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ahead of its time, yeah, that's Ahead another. Of its time. Yeah, that's another. If, you, if you're playing bingo at home, that's the 20th Dude. mention of. But yeah, the bandwagon in 53. Uh, I gotta say, one of the fun things about watching these back to back is that you go from the band The Beautiful to something like The Bandwagon, a musical with Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse. But I noticed a lot of, in the background, a lot of the f- uh, posters for films and books are from Band The Beautiful. <laughs> they just just uh, recycled they, them. They're set in the same universe. It's, not, no, it's deliberate. I insist it's deliberate. Forget the Tarantino-verse. the Minnelli-verse. It all takes... <laughs> but yeah, you mentioned um, The Long Long Trailer, which came out that same year. Mm. He really loves that framing device of starting at the end and narrating what has happened, even when there's no real reason. And that comes up so often, like the maybe not the majority of his films, but it feels like it. And it feels a bit weird in this case, but this is a very, very funny film. Mm. MGM didn't think people would want to see Lucy and Desi in a film when they could see them for free week by week. week, But yeah. yeah. And there's this great uh, moment, this incredibly funny moment where they're they're climbing up the mountain (laughs) and and it's really, really tense. (laughs) And she's talking about this book she was reading. They're trying to distract themselves. She's talking about a book she's read, and they're describing the plot to each other as they're looking out over the edge. Are we going to fall <laughs> off? And she said, and then I remembered I saw the film. They're talking about Undercurrent. They oh. never mentioned the title. <laughs> wow. But that was something Manelli pitched them before the thing. It was the best scene in the film, <laughs> I think. Awesome. Could they make sense of the plot? Um, and by the way bandwagon a little bit of a um, satire as well in terms of how I guess it's more how Broadway works and how Mm. Hollywood works but with you know the the egotistical director writer performer everything kind of getting this play and turning it into yeah some interesting little satire going on there too and with the exception of uh, his films Father of the Bride and Father's Little Dividend he does something that I've not seen in any other films of this era except maybe Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House, mm. which is that the problem isn't that they have this unwieldy trailer. It's that he goes into great detail about how much it costs, uh, yeah. from the initial investment to the extra money required for tax, and a tow bar to be well done with the car, and so on. And it grounds it. It's almost like a procedural, but with you know <laughs> expenses. And it grounds it in this reality that most comedies can't be fussed with, but it makes it really relatable. And mm. I think that might have been part of why it was so successful. Well, there's that when she first has the idea, sees the catalogue to um, go and get a a trailer. Mm. And, you know, you look at the catalogue and she's like, no, we're going to be saving money by doing this. And they go and look at it and it's like a third of the size of what it looks like. And there is that whole thing where it plays on that again and again. It's like the dream versus the reality Mm. and then them trying to make, you know, um, their reality this great dream and they just keep getting slapped back down with all this stuff and... I mean, apart off the screen, you know, they obviously weren't great, but on the screen, yeah, yeah. they're just such a great pairing. And, yeah. you know, it's, 
it's such a, a gimmicky sort of film compared to, well, maybe not. I mean, comedies these days are pretty gimmicky, but mm. there's just something special about everything that came together with that comedy where, um, you know, if you put a young kid in front of it these days, I still think that they would enjoy it as much as something that's coming out of the Absolutely. cinema. Brigadoon in 54, <laughs> one of my favourite musicals. Oh, as wow. A kid. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Did Not one get, of my favourite no? vanillas. Wow. Even even with uh Jean. Even with Jean even and with I love Jean myself Jean. some Jean <laughs> and um and uh Van as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, bit yeah. of a fan. But I don't know, there's just something <laughs> about this that's like maybe I need to be on drugs to fully enjoy it or something. It just I never connected with the story. Fair enough. <laughs> I think it's uh, there's a lot of nostalgia attached to that <laughs> for me, but um, interestingly enough, he shot this film in CinemaScope and very reluctantly, because he has a very interesting relationship with CinemaScope. Because his next film, The Cobweb, was also shot in CinemaScope, and it was a format Minnelli was quite resistant to. Hmm. He really didn't want to use it because he felt it was too wide; you couldn't get close-ups properly enough. He was told cinemas are going to play this in CinemaScope no matter what you do. So if you want to see Fred Astaire's, you know, if you're going to make a Fred Astaire movie, if you want to see his feet cut off so they can see his head, you have a choice. You know, either you have control over it or the cinema does. And so he very reluctantly shot in CinemaScope from this point onwards because that was the fad at the time. Yeah, right. But yeah, doing the cobweb, uh, this... Which is another batshit crazy <laughs> nonsense film script when directing a thriller. Again, the mm. technique is beautiful. He's doing wonderful things mm. with colour and mirrors and costumes and placement of actors. But the script, like 80% of the dialogue is the word drapes. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's like it's a thriller about its psychological struggle between people in an asylum and it's all over curtains. I, well, you put up the drapes. You should, she should put up the drapes. But I'm, I'm putting See, up think, the drapes. I think you're getting so obsessed with that detail. There's a lot of interesting it's stuff going on. It's all about drapes. It's a it's metaphor. Tedious. <laughs> it's a metaphor. Oh, God. A metaphor um, for what? Curtains. <laughs> now, if, if you'll indulge me a little autobiography here, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, when I first discovered Amazon was a thing, I swear to God, the first thing I started searching for was Kismet. I would hit refresh every day of the week, <laughs> waiting for it to come up. And eventually I forgot about it, because I think it came out on DVD. Um, but I was so obsessed with this film, because I remembered it so clearly as a child, and I'd been really worried that it wouldn't hold up. In Minnelli's book, he devotes like chapters to each of his films. This one gets a paragraph going... Aww. Yeah, it didn't quite work, but they they wouldn't let me do Lustful Life until I did this, and oh well. And moving on, I'm like, come on, <laughs> Vincent, you're killing me. But um, yeah, having having got the Blu-ray, and uh, I I think it totally holds up. I think the songs are almost uniformly great. The it looks stunning. Um, of all the U.S. invasions of Baghdad. Um, <laughs> Howard Keel, charming the pants off everyone. That's the one I can get behind. I have actually. I should have got this out before. This great. Oh. Um, was again good visual for a podcast. Good yeah. visual. I'm just yeah. getting a notebook out. Um, I wrote down this uh, description of uh, Howard Keel off IMDb, very you know yeah. notable website. Reputable source. <laughs> yeah, Never heard of it. Exactly. But I was like, after I read it, I'm like, if if I was a man, I guess um, this is like. Such a great description of someone um, with a barrel-chested swagger and cocky, confident air, not to mention his lusty handsomeness and obvious athleticism. <laughs> and it's That's like, how. and yeah, at the time in musicals, he was like 
the shit, really. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I only just saw Kismet on the Blu-ray of, of Yu Lee. And firstly, visually and in the Blu-ray, mm. amazing. The colours that are popping and um, the dance and song sequences. But his performance, like, I was just laughing nonstop. And this took me, as when I looked it up, I'd never seen it before. I looked it up online and you sort of see the, the poster or the cover and it looked looked kind of like a film that your mum or an auntie or someone would be watching going, oh, you've got to sit down and watch this. And as a kid, you might, well, obviously not for you, but as no. a kid, I probably would have been like, kind of looks a bit boring. Um, but when you actually pay attention to the script, it's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And I got to say from his book saying he wasn't really invested in it, you don't get the sense he wasn't trying. No. Not at all. Uh, then the Vincent... Van Gogh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh biopic, Van Lust for Life, <laughs> with Kirk Douglas. A world away from the Robert Altman version, which we but yet, watched a almost exactly ago. the same. Like the, I, I feel like the stories were, yeah. I mean, it's that life story, but I thought they were told almost identically, like in same beats, same. Well, it's interesting, to but see like them one's back the back, ultra yeah. realist version, and one's the kind of the Hollywood melodrama version. Mm. I thought this was rather good. Yeah. I, I feel like these characters, particularly Vincent and Gauguin, I feel like they belong in melodrama. They're, they're both naturally melodramatic mm. people, so it actually suited the style. Mm. And, you know, the way he made some frames look like Vincent van Gogh paintings, and, yeah, I was, I was really trying. I thought it was a really solid drama of the time. It was really good. I was talking earlier about how, how he was really progressive with attitudes, and part of that is that he it's pretty... It's probably well acknowledged that he was gay. And, uh, or at the very least bisexual. Or at the very least, yeah. Mm. And uh, he was married a number of times. Mm. And in Tea and Sympathy, based on this play about, um, you know, a lot of references made to this kid being gay and, you know, mm. without saying it outright. And he really had to navigate uh, the Breen office to, um, you know, make it palatable for audiences. Even with the compromises, it still works. You still get that. I think, yeah. The, the, him kind of being in love with the teacher is a little weird. Like, it doesn't mm. really jibe with everything we've been shown. Sure, yeah. But, I've, yeah, I thought this was actually one of his most impressive films. Mm. I loved their performances. I thought it was really sensitive and really beautifully done. And I loved the fact that she seemed to be, Deborah Carr's character seemed to be attracted to that type of man. Yeah. That every partner she'd had. From her husband who died in the war trying to prove his manliness to the coach who'd suppressed all of those urges, yeah, all those, yeah. you know, slightly effeminate urges early on to this boy. She was always attracted to this type of guy. And this is kind of the closest Manelli ever got to tackling his own dilemma and demons on film, I think. Yeah. And we really see the old costume designer Manelli come out because the blue shirts code for masculinity. Uh, the darker the blue, the more masculine the character. The lighter the blue, the more effeminate. Yeah. So he was really, like, seeding this stuff in there. Design... And getting rid of the tie. Like, the tie is almost a masculine thing, and it's like yeah, taking right. off the tie. It's like, yeah, you have it back, and yeah. Yeah. And then 57's Designing Woman, mm. one of the best screwball comedies for, uh, of that era, because they'd gone out of vogue a bit, I think, at that point. It's sort of a throwback. It's really fast-paced romantic comedy with Gregory Peck, who has never been funnier. Well, he's never really been funny, but <laughs> if he has, he's never been funny. <laughs> and, uh, and Lauren Bacall, just, just brilliant. Oh, classic. I've never seen this one. I, I, I was, this was the one I was most disappointed that I missed. Mm. Mm. There are a lot of really quick edits. There's a moment where uh, Bacall's making a connection between a woman she's met and a torn-up photograph on 
Peck's mm. floor. And there's this is really fast <laughs> editing yeah. that's uh, quite unexpected for the era. Again, ahead Again, of its time. See? <laughs> Uh, and now Paul's favourite film, Gigi, in It was part of a 1958 doubleheader. Yeah. Um, well, I did say before he'd made the best musical to win, b- yeah. best picture yeah. being um, An American in Paris. This, to me, is the worst. I, and I think you agree, Lee. Yeah, um, We were completely baffled as to why 50s audiences fell for this film. Like, I just found the songs completely uncatchy. I felt... My inner femo got up very, mm. very. I just very get really annoyed. bored during this film. You too. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, I'm not yeah, going to defend lot's it. Happening. I don't not know. a lot's happening. I think I watched it as a teenager and watched maybe like half an hour and turned it off. Didn't even try and watch it again for another ten years. And then you watch, and it's just like no, there's just there's no sparkle that draws me into it. There's nothing. You yeah. know, I always used to think that that opening number, uh, "Thank Heavens for Little Girls," I always used to think was taken completely out of context and wasn't nearly as creepy as its reputation suggested. <laughs> no, it's creepy. It has not aged it's well. Morris Chevalier leering at teenage girls, yeah. and some of them aren't teenagers. It's kind of, it reminds yeah. me of um, I'm not sure what not year the film was. Daddy Long Legs with oh, Fred yeah. Astaire, where it's kind of inappropriate. You know, he's a little bit too old for this yeah. young girl who's sort of like his adopted daughter but you know mm. it's maybe there's something in the air at that time oh, and, yeah, and this yeah. was sort of a, a sweet musical about it like what is essentially a budding teenage prostitute she's yeah. being trained to be a courtesan and it's like the, all these men who are in love with her and like singing about a girl has to become a woman sometime mm. and why do they have to become a woman why can't they remain little girls and like, I, there's more than one song about that. And yeah. it's just, and the character of Gigi, for a title character, has no agency whatsoever. There's like just huge slabs of scenes of characters talking about what she's going to, you know, what they're going to make her do with her life. It's I'm just, just glad Chevalier didn't turn out to be the love interest. I was really worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, three films this year. Uh, the Jesus, reluctant triple de- header. Yeah, The Reluctant Debutante. Um, uh, really, really enjoyable comedy with uh, Rex Harrison. Kay Kendall, uh, Angela Lansbury, and Sandra D. Very funny. Um, but then some came running. <laughs> Remade with... is What a Girl Wants with Amanda Bynes. You're kidding. Are you yeah. serious? Had That's no idea. Story. Uh, some came running uh, with Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Shirley MacLaine. Uh, brilliant film, and MacLaine is unbelievably <laughs> great. Um, so funny and yet sad. It's. Really good. Yeah, and uh, it's it's interesting that because of his tricky relationship with CinemaScope, he puts it to amazing use here. Uh, Scorsese actually used a clip of it in uh, Personal Journey Through American Movies doco, saying that the final carnival scene is one of the best uses of CinemaScope ever. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich said it was hugely influential on cinema. Uh, and it's not really spoken about much. You don't hear it name-checked as much, but mm. I, I think it's due for rediscovery because... Um, uh, it's it's a real testament that to was, I'd heard of it being a film thrown around by filmmakers and auteur critics, like mm. Andrew Saris, as being a really important film. Um, I hope I hope I've attributed that correctly to Saris. I hope nobody looks that up and goes, no, he panned it, dickhead, it was Pauline Kale. <laughs> but I know those sort of critics really got on board. I've heard of it by reputation, but I never really knew why. Mm. But it's very, you know, it's a film about post-war trauma. It's a film about, you know, people, you know, soldiers being displaced. Um, kind of harkening back almost, it's a darker version of the clock, mm. essentially. Yeah, a couple more films in, in 1960, Home from the Hill, an interesting melodrama with Robert Mitchum and George Hamilton, uh, a few good twists, solid drama, bit long, 
Um, <laughs> but bells are ringing. <laughs> Here, we go. Here we go. This is uh, yeah. this was one as another one I loved as a kid. Significantly oh, better. Oh, you've seen this? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Know. And it really holds up. It's yeah. just so I think funny. it's better than I remembered it. Like it's so much. Judy Holliday. Wow. This is a final role because she died of, of breast cancer, I think, shortly after. Um, and what a role! Like this is if this is one of the funniest performances I've ever seen. You know, <laughs> if she was around today, she would be just given a Thirty Rock or a, a Parks oh, and Rec. Yeah. Have your own sitcom. She is, uh, and this is one of many films where, uh, like, I love Dean Martin as well. I know you do, Paul. Yes. Uh, like we love Dean Martin, where the the male lead is, like, struggling to keep up with the female yeah. lead. Yeah. Like, he's basically the love interest, and she's, like, this incredible force of nature. It's one but of the But again, it's, it's almost like a Martin Lewis relationship. Yeah. yeah. Like, she's the firecracker, and he's the straight... He's the laid-back straight Yeah, they play guy. off each other so well. Yeah. yeah. There's some structural issues I kind of have. I think there's a plot too many going on. Mm. Like, I think the whole bookie thing is just unnecessary. Um could lose a handful of songs. But other than that, like, yeah, I had so much fun with this film. Um, yeah, but just discovering Judy Holiday, who I'd never seen before, and now I want to see and everything she was in. now you can watch all the amazing films. Yes. <laughs> but there's some really subtle, effective work that Manelli's doing here. Like, uh, the scene in which Dean Martin figures out what's going on, figures out the whole thing. There's this, like, the music, the camera movement, and, the, like, the counterintuitive way that Subway drowns out his musings to increase the drama. It's really effective stuff. I mean, yeah, again, this yeah. is what sets Manelli apart. In 62, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Uh, i got to say, of all the films featuring um, Paul Heinrich as a man fighting against the Nazi occupation of France as his wife cheats on him with our hero, <laughs> who is a neutral pacifist, this is my second favourite. <laughs> for people. Um, two Weeks in Another Town, another film about filmmaking mm. with Kirk Douglas, which I actually preferred to Bad and the Beautiful. Wow, I was disappointed by this. Really? I just couldn't get into it. I, it felt too histrionic. I just never believed a word of it. I think this is the film Manelli is overtly making about himself. I mean, he he didn't want anyone to know about the, the homosexual yeah. stuff, the bisexual stuff, so he hid that. But in, as a filmmaker, I think this is him being autobiographical, talking about his personal secrets, the difficulties on the set, and even as on a Do meta... Do you think he's the Edward G. Robinson Absolutely, character? Okay. yeah. And, I th and on a meta level... Edward G. Robinson and Kirk Douglas watch a film within the film that they made themselves. It's the bad and bad the beautiful. The beautiful, yeah. <laughs> like, it's really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very self-aware. Uh, and Goddard actually called it one of the ten best films of the year. Well, that's one year. reason for me to disagree. Right. Um, early Goddard. It's early Goddard. <laughs> yeah, right. Everybody in this film is openly hostile to each other. Mm. Like, just, just complete seething hostility, which I thought was kind of interesting. But it's all pitched at such a crazy rate. I don't know. This didn't, didn't land for me. So there was the courtship of Eddie's father... In '63, with Ron Howard as a kid. No, little Ronnie. Little Howard. Ronnie. Little Howard. Ronnie Howard. Sorry, Howard. sorry Jess. <laughs> uh, really feels like a precursor to all those single father rom coms that flooded the '80s and oh, '90s. But even around that time, um, you know, with six you get Egg Roll and uh, Cheaper by the Dozen. <laughs> yeah, I used right. to watch so many of those films, and this felt exactly like that. And mm. not that it was bad in itself; it was just very formulaic to what. You know, um, divorces were increasing at that time, and um, <laughs> tapping into that divorce tapping market. Tapping into the divorce market. Um, I think the thing that annoyed me and impressed me at the same time was little Ronnie Howard, who was both really irritating at times, but also um, quite. Imp I don't know how old he was at the time of filming, but 
there were some really impressive moments, well, mm. act, acting moments yeah. from him. I mean, nothing entirely memorable. Mm. And I think from a directing point of view, nothing particularly special. There's less innovation here, I think mm. maybe because cinema is sort of catching up to him a bit. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, too, that we didn't mention is that Bells Are Ringing also marked the final collaboration between him and producer Arthur Freed, mm. who has been working with him since, I believe prove me wrong. I mean, since very early. The beginning, pretty much. Yeah, since Cabin in the Sky, I'm pretty sure. And they were like kind of MGM's musical dream team. Mm. And so when they ended their relationship, I mean, I don't know whether his kind of formal timidity sort of comes out of that sort of Mm. trying to find his own feet again without his lieutenant. Like, I don't know. Yeah, He was, well, they they sort of stopped. I think it was around this time he stopped having the the contract, the studio contract, Mm. where he he goes to work at 9am and they tell him what movie he's making. Not really. But, but yeah, it's around that time that, that he that loses structure that. structure goes out. Yeah. yeah, so... But he's still doing, like, interesting stuff, like Goodbye Charlie in 64. There is still... Which is an adaptation of a play about a womanizer who presumably dies at the hands of the husband of one of his conquests. And his best... And he comes back as a woman. And his, he and his best friend sort of have this thing and it's incredibly subversive and I think it got past the senses because you're not entirely sure whether Charlie's a man or a woman and you're like <laughs> hang on it looks like he's a woman but like who's hang on it's Debbie Reynolds but hang on it's a guy right um and- written by George Axelrod who always made really interesting stuff like the girl can't help it and Lord Love a Duck and wrote these really odd screenplays and the the Sandpiper in 63 with, again with Elizabeth Taylor mm. the, and it's really interesting to compare this to her role as the daughter in Father of the Bride, like, you know, this idealistic, yes, Papa, I'm, you know, I'm getting married, and yeah. now she's this, like, free-spirited... Kind of super anti-authoritarian, mm. my son isn't going to school and learning how to be a part of mainstream society, <laughs> he's going to go out and rebel, That's and it. he's I'm... going to break all that, he's going to he's going to figure out what the good laws are and break the bad ones. I'm going to have an affair with a married reverend. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I actually kind of enjoyed this, mainly because yeah. it was possibly the hottest I've seen Elizabeth Taylor look in some time. Um, but yeah, it's sort of a really kind of lusty performance and obviously her and Burton have that chemistry mm. and yeah. Charles Bronson rocks up oh, as a God. sculptor. Yeah, he does. Um, but yeah, the Sandpiper's 65. It's a five-year gap, so he's really slowing down. On a clear day, you can see forever in 1970. Oh, God. Really good. It's, but- a, it's a fucked up script, though. That it's, script is all over. It's it. all over the shop. Yeah. And it's way too long. But, yeah. you know, it's Streisand. I always forget how funny Streisand is when, she, yes. yeah. when she's in funny mode. Yeah. And God, it's my favourite Streisand in funny mode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's up, Doc? My God. But, but God, yes, some of the so costumes good. and the flashbacks are amazing. The editing is incredible and modern. There are fast, effective cuts when it's called for. There are weird dissolves. He's really playing with the form. And he's still operating mm. at the height of his powers, I would say. What year is this again? 1970. This is 70. Yeah, so, I mean, that was for me it's probably the last one that I came to I mean naturally or naturally I just sort of um again on tv I saw never seen that one and there's a lot to discover but there's a big hump to get over um especially if you're a sort of a fan of the older style Mm. Minnelli it is very modern compared to that and very of its time as well yeah and then six years later his final film uh a matter of time where'd you land on this uh, it's 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 a failure. Like, but it's oh. part of that is because the studio cut it to shreds, and Manelli was so disappointed with it. And uh, even Scorsese took out an ad in support of Manelli in Variety, telling people not to see the film. Wow! Um, and it's the only film we made with Liza, isn't it? 
It's the only film we made with Liza. Who was probably Scorsese's girlfriend at that point. I mean, there are some great moments in there, mm. but overall it really falls flat. And I and you really can't lay that at Minnelli's feet on this one because uh, of the, the behind-the-scenes tussles. Uh, like, it's a real shame when the final film doesn't work, but thankfully that's not how legacies work. Like, we'll mm. always remember him for films like An American Paris, uh, Mimi in St. Louis, and The Bad and the Beautiful, and all of the others. So, yeah. As bad a note as that is to end on, the, the memories are far stronger. <laughs> Agreed. Well, Jess, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hopefully something's made sense. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and a very quick note, if you aren't following us on Twitter or liking us on Facebook, you might be missing the monthly competitions we are now running. If you want to win some stuff, go there now and see what we've got going. Uh, but until then, we'll see the rest of you next month. Don't see industry, Donald.